The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Presently, by God's grace, we are undertaking a complete exegetical study of Paul's letter to the Romans. In our last episode, we finished chapter 1 of Romans. However, before we move on, I think it is important that we make note in review and summary of each chapter. Now, bear in mind that the chapter and verse notations were not made in the original text. These, in fact, are both later additions for the ease and reference of the reader. But, as I look at Paul's letter to the Romans, I believe it is very apparent that the flow of Romans, with its topics and its theological content, was not achieved by spontaneously writing on the part of Paul. True, the Holy Spirit is ultimately guiding Paul, but I believe Paul is drawing exhaustively upon his encyclopedia of understanding presented in the Old Testament regarding the full plan and revelation of God regarding creation, 
fall, redemption, restoration, justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. Further, I believe that it is likely that Paul created, at least in his own mind, if not on paper, an outline of his intended letter. The result is not simply a letter to the Romans, but is more properly a thesis, a syllabus, by which point by point provides a lesson plan detailing a presentation of God's salvation mechanism. Romans provides examples and logical arguments for the reader compelling those whom God is pleased to be moved to repentance, to hope, and to assurance, while at the same time providing the truth and realities by which those whom God has not appointed will be judged and condemned. In chapter 1, Paul immediately starts with the historic reality that he is an apostle of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, who is in fact the same Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament with over 300 prophecies known to have been recorded a minimum of 100 to 300 years before Jesus was born. These 300 prophecies give specific details of Jesus' life, ministry, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, and more importantly, each were fulfilled in exact detail during his life. Further, Jesus' life and ministry were accompanied by numerous miracles, by power, and by signs which he demonstrated in order to show his identity, his deity as God of very God. Paul reminds us in verse 16 and 17 that the gospel is the power, the dunamis, the dynamite, which is the sufficient, effectual call of God, which by his sovereign will transforms those whom God has called and appointed to salvation. In this way, God's attributes of righteousness and holiness are imputed to his elect, i.e. those whom he calls to salvation, through Christ's finished work via faith. For those whom God is pleased to call to salvation, we receive Christ's righteousness, holiness, perfection via faith, and God is pleased just as he is pleased with his Son. Simultaneously, God's wrath against our sin and rebellion was poured out upon Christ, who suffered and died on our behalf. Conversely, the unregenerate who remain in sin or rebellion, those who reject Christ, will have God's wrath poured out upon them. As verse 18 states, God's wrath is poured out on all unrighteousness and ungodliness. This, according to Romans 3, includes every human, past, present, and future, because we have all sinned. We all deserve death, hell, and the grave. It is only by God's grace that some will be spared, and according to God's mercy, that wrath which we so richly deserve 
was instead poured out on his Son in our place. We are reminded that all mankind is without excuse because God has given sufficient revelation and understanding of the truth and reality of God to make everyone accountable. There is more than enough to condemn us one and all, but it is insufficient to rise to the level of the effectual call to salvation. Instead, the effectual call to salvation was, is, and remains a sovereign choice on the part of God for each person. Finally, as the chapter closes, verse 21 forward, God reveals through Paul the diametrically opposed and unavoidable pathway of the unregenerate versus the born from above. In the case of the unregenerate, our base nature of sin and rebellion increases proportionally to our rejection of God. God delivers them over progressively to a darkened and profane mindset. Since the soul of the unregenerate is already spiritually dead, it is only logical that the body be next to corrupt itself in every aspect of sexual relationships which was and is intended ultimately to glorify God according to His intended design. Finally, God is displaced by man, and each man or woman ultimately sees themselves as God, or at least autonomously doing what is right in their own eyes, or in the eyes of the consensus of the unregenerate community. God, God's word, and God's people then become the enemy, which is to be vilified and ultimately eliminated. Conversely, those whom God has truly called are his elect. As such, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 31, they will, by God's grace, experience the golden chain of salvation, the ordo salutis, leading to glorification. Let's continue our study of Romans with chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. So, up to now, we have been thinking that chapter 1 is limited to the unregenerate. We have mistakenly established an us-versus-them mentality, and we are either angry or perhaps sorry for the unregenerate, or we are perhaps pleased with ourselves to know that we have made the right decision and they didn't. But here, we are reminded of the fact that we each and all begin as unregenerate. We are all justly deserving of death and hell, as stated. Sin, all sin, is sin, and God does not regard one sin as preferable or worse than another. God is not judging on a curve. So, thus far, whatever condemnation that we have been feeling regarding those in rebellion... 
we should, as God does, apply it equally to all those involved in any kind of sin. Verse 1 is simply the reality check from God's perspective on all mankind who are outside of Christ. The quote-unquote outside is deserving of hell, and the fact that there are some whose sin is horizontally better or worse than another means absolutely nothing to God. So the bottom line cut to the chase is here, when you read the word unregenerate anywhere in Romans, simply replace the word unregenerate with your first and last name because each of us belong in that category at some point and it is only by God's grace that he sovereignly chooses to redeem some out of that category by his grace and mercy to then be covered by what Jesus did on the cross and what he accomplished once and for all. Verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. In other words, when God judges and finds guilty those who are outside Christ, the truth and reality is that God's judgment is just, true, and perfect. There will not be even one person throughout history who will have an excuse. Every person will bear the full measure and responsibility for their guilt. Now, when the verse says that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things, the logical question is, what things? Well, in order to understand what things, refer back to chapter 1 of Romans, verses 29 through 31. It's referring to all things. Next verse, verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? In other words, as you're sitting there listening to this podcast or reading God's word, and you're seeing someone out there, whoever it may be, wherever they may be, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, they're sinning in some way, and you're so shocked, you're so horrified, and you're thinking to yourself, uh, I wonder what God is going to do to that person as a result of that. This verse is simply saying, stop worrying about that other person and start looking at yourself from God's perspective and ask yourself, what have you done? What are you doing? Do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God simply because whatever that you are doing is somewhat in your mind less perverse, less evil, less sinful from, from whatever person that you're envisioning? No, not at all. Why? Because all sin is sin, period. Verse 3 and Romans chapter 3 go hand in hand. We all have sin. We all fall short. But we should not allow ourselves to be confused by the unregenerate who use this fact and proclaim it disingenuously in order to silence those who would proclaim repentance and a return to justification and sanctification. 
in other words, when we reverse the situation and we look at society, we as Christians oftentimes are saying, hey, we're not perfect, but we can still call out the sin that we see. The tragedy is that when we oftentimes call out sin, the unregenerate world is prone to go, oh, who are you to judge? Look at what you're doing. Uh, you have sin in your life, therefore you cannot look at, proclaim, or in any way pass judgment on me for the sin that I'm committing. Well, oftentimes the truth is that the difference is that as, as sanctified, submitted Christians, we know that we have sin. We're not deluding ourselves. Uh, we stumble and fall every day, but the reality is that if sincerely we are Christians and Christ abides in us, then we have a desire, a desire to do what's right. We have a desire to be conformed to the image of our Savior who is completely holy and righteous. And yes, we're going to fall short at times, but because we have that sincere desire which is implanted in us, God still sees us as nonetheless perfect as his son is perfect because he's looking at his son, not us. Conversely, those uh, who are unregenerate are sinning and they are trying to justify their sin. They're trying to excuse their sin. They're trying to change God's word or who God is in order to say what they're doing is in fact okay because God is quote unquote loving. As an example, let's take those who are entrenched in improper anti-biblical sexual relationships they will often demand that they be left alone or that they are children of God on the same basis that others who have problems with alcohol, drugs, or uh, fidelity within biblical marriage should be left alone. Both are supposedly quote-unquote imperfect, yet supposedly some allow themselves to be granted status as quote-unquote true Christians while others who are engaged in sin, which have social stigma, are denied. Therefore, the argument is that either none should be allowed, or that all should be allowed. But, the truth is that the presence of sin and or imperfection, be it small and insignificant, or huge and socially stigmatized, is not the issue. The issue is whether or not a person has had their heart transformed by God's grace and they are now, as stated, submissive to the conviction of God's word and his Holy Spirit. To give example, no matter what the sin, whenever and however God brings to our heart and mind the fact that we have fallen into sin or rebellion, if in fact we are true and sincere Christians, we are indebted to repent and to turn away from it. If instead we attempt to rationalize, deny, redefine, reinterpret, excuse, etc., then we demonstrate that in fact we are in rebellion against God and his word to the same degree. 
But the defining fruit and proof of God's indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives is that those who have truly received Christ will, as stated, desire holiness, righteousness, truth, justice, and sanctification into the fullness and the stature of the nature and the character of Christ. They will shun and they will repent of any and all sin revealed by the sufficiency of God's word cover to cover. Verse 4, Or despisest thou the richness of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Verse 4 and 5 following reveal the sovereign perfection of God's attributes and character. Firstly, it is as a result of man's disobedience and rebellion that all men find themselves guilty before God and deserving of death and hell. However, God chooses to reveal the perfection of his love, grace, patience, mercy, and kindness as well as the perfection of his justice, holiness, and righteousness. Both are equally true and perfect, and both are eternal. Therefore, the outcomes are eternal. Verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, in other words, the faith that God provides and sanctifies leads to eternal life. The disbelief and rebellion that is compounded daily apart from God leads ultimately to its dividend of God's wrath and judgment eternal. Uh, this would concur with Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Quote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap, unquote. Verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So don't get confused here because God is not rewarding people with eternal life and or entrance into heaven based upon quote unquote good deeds. Just the opposite. If we were receiving reward according to our deeds, then our reward would be hell. Instead, we understand that we don't have any good deeds. We only have filthy rags according to Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. If and when we attempt to secure salvation and or access to God or heaven via deeds, then the only thing that God renders to us is our just wages reward, which is death. However, if we approach God through the finished work and imputed righteousness of Christ who indwells in our heart, then it is Christ's deeds that God sees and nothing else. Since Christ Jesus is God's Son in whom He, God, is well pleased, then we have access to God on the basis of Jesus and His perfection. God will therefore render to us the glory which Christ deserves as very God 
and not the death which we deserve because Christ died for our sins. Verse 7, To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. Here, verse 7 gives the positive fork in the road for mankind in comparison to verse 8. Here, once we are transformed by Christ, we will be rewarded with eternal life and, and immortality because by God's grace we have patiently continued in exhibiting Christ's righteousness, seeking his glory and honor. What we do, we do by Christ, for Christ, again, according to Romans 8, chapter 29 through 31. Verse 8. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So conversely, those who rebel and who are disobedient against every revelation of God's truth and sovereign will, and do whatever against God that is right in their own eyes, will justly receive God's wrath for eternity. Verse 9, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. Here, verses 9 and 10 restate again the fork in the road, starting this time with the negative, then the positive. In this case, Paul talks about man's soul, which is eternal. Regardless if we are talking about the Jew or the Gentile, all mankind is destined to tribulation and eternal anguish that doeth evil. Moreover, we start out fallen, doing evil, and we continue on that path until such time as by God's grace he gives us a new nature whereby through his indwelling Holy Spirit, Christ works in and through us and we are delivered from that tribulation and anguish Verse 10, But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For every Jew and or Gentile, for all mankind, for those that are in Christ, God sees Christ's completed righteousness. Further, God moves his Holy Spirit within his elect to work and to accomplish his will and his purpose, which are good. For by God's grace we share as his servants the glory, honor, and peace which God receives. Verse 11, For there is no respect of persons with God. In other words, God is not prejudiced. He does not see color. He does not distinguish between Jew or Gentile, or any other class of persons for that matter. In both cases, with the unregenerate and with the redeemed, God perfectly treats each person according to what they deserve and demonstrates the equal perfection of all his attributes. The only distinguishment which God makes is between saved and unsaved. In the case of the unsaved or the unregenerate, God will perfectly treat each person according to what they deserve and will demonstrate his equal justice and give the unregenerate death, hell, and the grave. 
In the case of the regenerate, those born from above, God gives us what we do not deserve. Instead of hell, death, and the grave, which was what we justly deserve as the unregenerate, God regenerates our spirit and gives us a new nature and gives us what we don't deserve, which is Christ's riches and his glory, which he achieved on the cross, and instead places all of what we should have rightly deserved and placed it on Christ, who died in our stead. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The, the